there's a trend, you'll know he'll attend. Oh shoot, oh, your boy did it again. You're now listening to Bobby and Friends. Bobby and Friends. Bobby and Friends. Hey everyone, uh, today I have uh, my good friend Dejorn, uh from New York and so he's going to be talking be, talking a little bit about, you know, growing up in New York as well as uh, going to school here in D.C. and sort of that experience and the parallels between his experience of growing up in New York and going to school in D.C. Uh, you also get to hear about some of the work that he does at the African American Policy Forum. So there's going to be a lot that we'll be talking about on this uh, episode. So I hope you uh, continue to tune in and again, uh, don't forget to follow me on Instagram as well as Twitter at Bobby underscore X underscore friends. And obviously, let your folks, your friends, your frenemies, everybody that you know, um, know about this podcast and continue to tune in, give me reviews, share it with friends, interact with me on those socials. And so thank you so much for the support. Hope you enjoy this interview. Hey, Dejorn. Yo, what's going on? I'm doing well. How are you doing today? Pretty good. We're just trying to stay afloat amidst everything, you know? No, for sure. Uh, So first of all, thank you for coming on to Bobby and Friends. I really appreciate having you on. Uh, Just, you know, right to sort of get into it uh could you just describe a little bit about yourself sort of you know what are your names how old are you you know and where are you from yeah so um i'm dejorn as you just said um just turned 21 this past well not this past about like a good two three weeks ago born and raised in brooklyn new york anyone who's specifically from new york or brooklyn knows canarsie born and raised in canarsie i use he him his pronouns third year at georgetown studying african-american studies and sociology i'm a middle child like um, (laughs) born to both nigerian and jamaican roots that's crazy Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like when I got to Georgetown, that's when people were like, wait, what? Like, oh my, because like, I feel like in New York, like it's so common for everyone to just like have like, what is it? Like a melting pot of just like various ethnic backgrounds or just like various nationalities as well. But getting to Georgetown, everybody's like, yo, what the hell? Like, uh, can I curse on this? Like, yeah, can I fine, minimal curse or no cursing? No, you can curse. That's fine. Okay. Yeah. So people got here and they're like, what the hell? Like this nigga got so many <laughs> different ethnic <laughs> backgrounds. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I don't know. That's just, uh, that's a smidge about me. Yeah. And so, um, sort of talk a little bit about, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, you know, how was, how was your childhood like, you know, growing up sort of, uh, in one of the five boroughs as you old New Yorkers like to say, uh, and with it being Brooklyn, what, what was that experience like for you? Yeah. So I think, you know, growing up in Brooklyn has definitely been the foundation, um, and core to a lot of my experiences. That's definitely propelled me to, um, a place where I am now, and I think the one um, there's a lot of things that growing up in Brooklyn has instilled in me. Um, but I think one of those things is, is just definitely catering to my like diligence. So I've grown up just like around a lot of people who've gone through various like you know hardships, um, difficulties, or just various barriers placed against them, um, whether systemic or societal. But I think one thing that's um, just been interesting is the just ways in which like i feel like brooklynites have this instilled core of being a go-getter um and it's like even with the many building blocks of like barriers placed against people just seeing how people um continuously find various ways in which they can still work against the grain is always has always been something that i've always admired and that's something that's definitely um transferred over to my stream of roots which i'm really grateful for um so you know like 
I feel like people hear like, you know, all these things about New York, whether that be danger, culture, like all of these things. Um, and I think for me, something I've always just valued is just like how there's so much to take from New York and how there's so much to, um, well, Brooklyn specifically in terms of culture, in terms of community, in terms of um, integrity. There's just a lot, I think that's just been helpful to the founding core of like my identity or just like various things that I transfer over to places anytime I enter a different space. Um, so there's a lot of things uh, that I've grown up with in a Brooklyn identity that I can't compromise because I find it very essential. Uh, you know moving forward so i hope that answers that but i feel like there's just that you know that grit that kind of like culture that comes with the grit as well too of just like um within the community so you know what i i think i second that sort of just based off you know what i've seen of, about and when i'm around you know you and and other people from brooklyn it's it's you know i always say it, it's just a different vibe it's a different you know sort of a different energy that you all sort of bring to any space and sort of any environment and it's just this overconfidence and, and when I say overconfidence I mean that in the most you know positive way right it's it's you know like I know what I'm doing here you know I know why I'm here and I know what I'm doing and you know and I'm gonna do what I came to do you know and sort of no one's gonna stop me from sort of doing those intentions that I had with and so I just I really I will say that is one thing I really admire about people from New York but especially you know people from Brooklyn and whatnot and sort of that energy that you all bring to any sort of space um and sort of talking about that so you know you're currently at Georgetown and so sort of what was it, you know, what was it that gravitated you towards a place like Georgetown, but specifically a city like D.C. for you to come from New York City, you know, arguably one of the, you know, best cities in the world and one of the largest cities in the world to come to a city like D.C., you know, so what was that transition like and, and sort of what are the things that draw you to this city and, and to this university in the first place? Wow. For one, I'll, t I'll let you know this before even answering that. I still struggle with answering this anytime people ask me this because it's always just like, I feel like it changes um, over time because you either learn more things that's contributed to your, to your, um, I guess, to your pull factors of coming to D.C. or just um, getting an education in Ge uh, at Georgetown or just immersing yourself in D.C. culture. Um, so I still struggle with that. But I'll tell you, um, I think my 18-year-old self was uh, um, initially drawn by just like, oh, I want to get into politics. And I feel like I look back at that 18 year old stuff and I'll be like, yo, what the hell are you talking about? Like, I feel like, I feel like and I'm glad like my 21, my 21 year old self now looks at the 18 year old self to like have those conversations of like, well, this was the specific kind of politics you were talking about, the black kind of politics and stuff like that. There's a number of things actually. So the one um, that I was thinking about was geographical location, of course, in terms of like, um, New York is home. I don't want to be too far away from New York. My brother uh, went to school pretty far. He was upstate New York, but it was still just too far. I'm like, nah, I need to be close to home because like, not for nothing. There's just like too many things where I'm just like essentials and just, I just need to be close to home. But I also need to be away from home. Like, I was like, I don't need something where it's like, um, my parents can just pop up on me whenever they want or anybody yeah. can just pop up on me but I still need something that's like not too you know far but something that's just still a bit close like you know that nice little four-hour train ride so there's that for geographical location in terms of just like academic rigor I feel like I knew what I was getting into coming to Georgetown because that's definitely what I wanted I feel like the public school education system in um, New York is so it's disgusting um, to say the least in a sense that I guess having this um, academic experience now and just thinking about my, just reflecting upon my like academic um, 
my experience within academia, like just the academic history, you think about how many things was intentionally left out of your education. Right. Um, you think about how many things, like, you, of course you think you're mindful of like the resources you were missing out on and just, you, there's just all of that. I'm just like how fucked up that whole, the whole board of education is in New York. And so of course coming to Georgetown, I know what to expect, but I just know that I needed that kind of challenge and challenge itself is an understatement to like everything else that I was expecting. Um, so there's that for academics and then network was something I was just really big on in terms of like knowing that yeah education and everything is nice and cool but what about the people and what about the relationships that I ho hope to foster because leaving away from Brooklyn I was like I said and yeah like you said this New York people are very overconfident and like you know and it's something where it's just like okay yeah I'm tired of New Yorkers though like I need to meet some more people like you know and New Yorkers have people coming from everywhere but I was like I need to meet people from everywhere but in a different location if that makes sense so I was like I feel like DC would be the perfect place to do that and so there's that there's the network there's the location there's just a number of those things that the 18 year old self was seeing so I would say that pulled me to Georgetown in terms of transition and like getting used to Georgetown or just DC itself. The first thing I had to get used to was just like, yo, DC food really just does not, not hit the way New York food hits. And I feel like- I will not entertain that debate, but you go ahead and offer your opinion. I don't want the DC people oh, coming at I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna entertain this debate. I'm gonna stand on this debate. I'm, it's not even gonna be a debate. Like New York food, like, so I think for me, I was just like, damn, like, the way I could just pull up to a chicken spot or pull up to a Dominican spot or pull up to a Jamaican spot or a Haitian spot or whatever food I was looking for, good food, it would be down the block and I could just easily get that and usually open at whatever time I wanted. Now I'm like, damn, I got to DC, places is closing over here at like eight o'clock, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock. Mm -hmm. They forcing me to fast. Like, <laughs> I would be like, damn. And then, and then the food wasn't even doing, yeah. So there's yeah. that, that was really a transition, but no. I will say in terms of like just the academic rigor, that was definitely that transition. Like, yes, I was asking for this challenge and yes, I had resources to help me, but I feel like inevitably that challenge of like transitioning and understanding and just like getting used to all of this and by actually immersing yourself in such like a culture of this academic rigor was just something for me that was just like, whoa, take a step back, see what needs to get done. Like, you know, and it's just the learning curve and the learning period of time where I'm just like, a B for me was good. You feel me? Like coming here, I'm like, okay, a B is nice. Like, but then I would be surrounded by peers who just like, why would I get an A minus? Like, why would that happen? Like, what kind of, and I'm like, wait, am I doing something wrong? <laughs> like, you know, like, but, but I will say, I realized soon enough, and this is something like I was already told prior to coming here, like that's Georgetown culture for you. And I'm like, so. you know, like y'all be y'all be going in, like a minus make you cry. Yeah, and I'm like, I feel like for me, I had to definitely, I think for me, a very introspective part of myself was very, um, was just trying to be very intentional about f not falling into that culture yeah. of beating myself up or um, hurting myself over numbers, mm -hmm. over hurting myself over numbers, over hurting myself over things that's not tangible to like my actual experience or my lived experience or my story. Um, and so I think for me, that's just something I, I struggled with reckoning with or struggled to um, reckon with over time during the summer transitioning in my first semester. Like, you know, it just takes time because it's like, it's so easy to get sucked into that culture that it's just like for me to have to step back and realize everything that's going on within the inside while also still being on the inside is so weird. So 
yeah, I say all that to say like it wasn't easy, but um, and it's still a learning process. I'm not gonna even have it learned by the time I receive that diploma, but um, it's a learning process yeah. the whole time. Well, you know, I, I think that that is very true in terms of the transition of coming here and. I, I definitely have been around people who, you know, they will cry if they get an A minus in the class. And I'm just like, yo, like, really? Like, it's that serious, you know? And, and so it is a different transition and sort of culture when you get here. Um, but sort of talking about that transition, you know, coming from Brooklyn and then coming from, to DC, sort of when I, you know, obviously as everybody knows, you know, I grew up in Iowa, in the Midwest. And so sort of the concept of, uh, of gentrification was never really at the forefront of my mind or I never really had seen it, you know, face to face. And so anytime I ever heard of like gentrification in the media and whatnot, it would always be in the context of Brooklyn. Um, and so I sort of wanted to get sort of your take on sort of coming from Brooklyn and sort of, did you have sort of any interaction with, you know, sort of gentrification? Did you sort of see that change take place? And coming to DC, what was your your experience of gentrification from Brooklyn versus DC and what are the similarities or differences that you you sort of have seen within that process um, of change over time? Mm, so um, there's three parts to the way I'm with the way I'm thinking about this. So the first being, um, I think back in Brooklyn, I think when I was just like, you know, going to school, living there and everything, I would hear the word get thrown around so much and I would just like be in the know, like not even in the know of the word, but just like have some form of awareness of the word in term. And I think I would notice it um, and recognize it as, oh, so we got white people moving in. <laughs> or if not that, <laughs> oh, small businesses are getting torn down for Starbucks. Right. I feel like that would be the easiest way. I know I, I was speak to myself, that would be the easiest way I would look at it and be like, oh, this store is not there no more. Like, look at this store that's here. Like, why we got a Chipotle right here? Like, why we got a Starbucks right here when we just had this little spot right here with the family spot? Um, and I think that was the first way in which I recognized it. And I almost thought it was just a New York thing as well, too, because I'm like, well, with New York, um, I'm like, New York is so big. And when you think about like Manhattan, a, um, a predominantly white um, area, you know, when you think about the demographics of areas like that, you think about um, there's a push. And so I would only think like, oh, there's people coming from what other parts of New York to come over here and do this. When, actual, when in actuality, that's not, that was not the case. Um, and so of course, coming to DC, I've learned like, you know, gentrification exists everywhere. Yeah. Um, and not just nationally, but globally. Um, and upon taking a gentrification course um, last semester, actually, um, of course, that filled so many gaps within my knowledge of like understanding a process of gentrification, understanding the ramifications that come from it. And I think like I, just going back home afterwards and actually having um, learned all that information and then taking it back to your community, it's just like a whole thing for you to like sit with that information, still spread it around with people um, in a digestible form that's not overwhelming. It's quite interesting because you think about the ways in which like all of this is systemically rooted um, through capitalism, of course, which, you know, goes hand in hand with with racism. Um, a lot of this itself is just pushing out um, marginalized identities within these communities um, to make space for capitalism, whoever's going to fund these bigger corporations. And so it's like, when you think about it, they're like, oh, okay, well, I don't know where y'all going to go. Like, but we got to make space for people who finna fund, like, you know, this and this. Like, the only reason, and this is so interesting, I'm going to use this one example really quickly, is 
when we think about like Trader Joe's and everything in um, markets like that, where we're like, okay, yes, like organic goods. Um, oh, wow. They're introducing that to here. And of course we can see like, why? Um, like, oh yes, we have really good um, organic, what is it? Products and goods here for us, like the snacks and everything that's cool. But for one, who is that being offered to? Why was the Trader Joe's even built in a specific neighborhood? And, um, you know, like just, yeah, thinking about that. So I'm like, for me, I like Trader Joe's. Why is it that I have to travel an hour to get to a Trader Joe's? And then when you think about it, when you travel to the area where the Trader Joe's is, it's in a whole like completely one of the first areas in Brooklyn, actually, that was completely gentrified. Um, and they place, they specifically and intentionally place, um, you know, big corporations like that in order to cater to the people who are living there. Because you don't see people, <laughs> you know, people who's moving from um, various places um, nationally, from like Minnesota or like wherever else, like, or Iowa or anywhere. And they'll come and say like, oh, let me go to C-Town or let me go to Key Food or let me go to the local grocery store. Like they're looking for the Trader Joe's. Right. Because, and so, you know, so I want us to, I want you to think about like how that's like intentional. And all of this is just like, and just like the amount of food deserts in these places of like low communities within Brooklyn. So like me, like I just told you, I would have to travel an hour to find like a sustainable place for like, um, you know, organic products and stuff like that. So that's a lot, but that's kind of like um, some of the ways I've been thinking about that. Well, you know what? Thank you for that insight. Um, you know, very interesting tapes sort of your experience of growing up in Brooklyn and sort of coming to DC and even some of the new things that and sort of new information uh, that you were able to garner, you know, going to DC and then going back home and sort of having a more sort of thorough understanding of that, you know, process of gentrification. But sort of moving on, sort of you talked about how, you know, you're studying African American uh, studies as well as I believe sociology, is that correct? Yeah. And so with that, sort of how has that sort of informed sort of the work that you've been doing at the African American Policy Forum? And so and so if you could, you know, sort of quickly talk about, you know, uh, just a little bit about what the forum is um, and sort of what the work is that you've been doing there. And I believe you've been interning there since the summer, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So just talk a little bit about how sort of your studies have informed sort of um, the work that you've done there and why you decided to work there in the first place. And so, uh, yeah, if you could just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, I guess to your first question about um, how my studies have informed that, I think, I think, well, I think it was primarily, it's definitely primarily, um, you know, I think more AFM filled, so more African American um, studies influence, mm -hmm. sociology, but of course, both are um, within the motivation of it. So the first is like, I know, like, um, I'm really interested, of course, in Black liberation and considering all angles of Black liberation. Um, but I think over time, I've realized how there can't be, I don't think um, there can be Black liberation without a centering of, um, you know, identities across the margins. And so considering like you can't center um, Black liberation without centering the identities, you know, that are, um, at risk and vulnerable to, you know, various barriers of systemic violence or carceral violence or any form of American violence or just violence globally. Um, and so with that, and then of course there's the sociology and understanding um, how these 
how systems function within a society or how societies just generally function. And so I felt like those really went hand in hand. And so, you know, that definitely from me reading my first uh, my first time reading um, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw's work back fresh back in freshman year. Um, I think from there, that was like a, a very radicalizing moment where I'm like, oh, shoot, like, wait, what? Like, because, you know, you think about it and it's just like, I feel like, like I was saying before, there's just all this new information you're learning, um, transitioning into like um, higher academia. And so now it's just like, whoa, wait, how come nobody was telling me this? Um, because I was like, well, when you look at the various efforts that were centered in terms of just like, um, black liberation movements or just like you know whatever the case is it's usually like male centered it's usually like um yeah male centered and so with that i think that definitely made me start questioning like wait like why is it that like why is that the case and even from there like that's definitely learn after learning intersectionality and then just considering um you know well what role does my um what role does my privilege play you know as a black man um and in terms of thinking about it from a role of like patriarchy or thinking about the ways in which i have either um contributed in some form of harm or violence and how do i reflect from that and then contribute to the work of black liberation you get what i'm saying right. so i think that for me was definitely um a very transformative point within my studies where i'm like okay well then how can i like get you know committed um and devote myself to like this kind of groundwork if I'm actually serious about black liberation. You get what I'm saying? So yeah. I think for me, um, and it's interesting that I had started this internship back in uh, the summer of 2020, because as you know, or I feel like you know, yeah. um, you know, with everything that was going on in terms of all the uprising um, regarding the murderings of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, um, and countless of others um, of individuals, of black individuals um, who were murdered by the carceral and police systems, it was just a lot for me to like, okay, well, how can I actually intentionally get involved? Because I refuse to like make my career after Georgetown or during Georgetown based on something I'm not actually, I actually don't care about. Like, I feel like something in undergrad that I wanted to be intentional about was like, I want to commit to work that I'm actually like, okay, I enjoy this. Like I can wake up and say like, yo, I fuck with my job. Like this is actually like, you know, like I'm actually doing something that, you know, while still like feeling as though I'm not taken away from various, like, I guess various levels at which my integrity exists. And so shout out to Fatu. Um, Fatu, if you're listening, shout out to Fatu for shout real, because for sure. my good sis Fatu, um, she actually sent me this internship back in May, May 2020. And she's like, yo, like, check this out. And I'm like, wait, what? I'm like, oh, shoot. <laughs> and so, yeah, she sent me the internship. And so I applied um, and I got it and started working in June. And so intersectional feminism has definitely been something that I've been like, you know, really strong on like committing myself to and actually embracing the identity of an intersectional feminist, which I don't know, which I think is not common um, for black men to do or just men, period. And in, 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 in embracing any form of feminism, probably primarily because it's situated, I think, I feel like there's like conversations and this is something I'm fleshing out in just various like platforms and forums, but like, you know, people, black men or just men, period, be scared to embrace those identities. Right because that's waged in some form of like patriarchy and 
and violence and stuff that's preventing them from actually reckoning with that and actually understanding um, the root of interest, why intersectional feminism even exists. You get what I'm saying? So I think for me, this is my journey of actually my journey of like, you know, not only uplifting and sharing these stories, but also combating um, the history to which I've grown up under and then combating that, you know, dismantling various systems to which I've been under and then to also create, to also help create spaces uh, for other marginalized identities as well that are like, you know, at the forefront, like I said, of this movement. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much, I would say like, that's like the foundation of that. And so now, how many months later is it now? I don't know. So it's from June 2020 and now we are in March 2021. Um, so eventually I was offered a position as a research assistant after um, having been a research and writing intern. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, of course, I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Why do I want to reside? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I've been a research assistant now since August, I think. August or September, but yeah, I've been a research assistant since then and just been participating in a number of really, really amazing projects. And sort of talking about sort of some of those uh, projects you've been a part of and, um, you know, also a, a sort of going off sort of that theme of sort of intersectional feminism, uh, there is a campaign that the African American Policy Forum started, uh, which is the hashtag Say Her Name campaign. And which, you know, is supposed to bring awareness to sort of often invisible uh, names, stories of black women and girls who have been victimized by racist police violence and provide support to their families. And so sort of with that theme of intersectional feminism that you've been talking about, sort of why was this campaign, this Say Her Name campaign, so important um, to the work of the African-American Policy Forum? And why is it important for society? And, you know, why was it necessary uh, throughout these sort of, uh, you know, periods of, of sort of... Uh, well, I don't want to call it racial wetting, but sort of Black Lives Matter movement. You know, why was the Say Her Name campaign so crucial and important? And how does that sort of serve into the whole intersectional feminism sort of framework that you've been uh, working under? Yeah, well, I think you kind of hinted, hint, uh, sorry, hinted at it just now, too, of just like um, the ways in which Black women um, and gender non-binary and trans folks are left out of the scope, mm-hmm. you know? And so... Um, that's really essential to this conversation or just this discourse period of just like, you know, why aren't we saying that? Why aren't we saying her name? You know what I'm saying? So like, um, and I think you definitely touched on this. So this was actually started. The campaign itself was actually launched back in December 2014. Um, and so, you know, when we think about um, various black men who are being killed and murdered um, by police, it's like, and I think people often misconstrue this idea that saying her name is um, counterproductive or, you know, it's taking away from um, centering of like, you know, other individuals like black men who are being killed. But it's like, no, if anything, it's bringing them into the conversation of like, let's acknowledge you can't say black lives matter and only have one specific black life that's mattering to you. You know what I'm saying? Like that itself is the problem. And I think for me, like I said, that was a part of my foundation of understanding why is that the case or why is it not the case that black girls, black women, black men are not being talked about in these conversations. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, AAPF, the African-American Policy Forum and the Center for Intersectionality and Social Policy Studies, Ooh, that's always a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the campaign is pretty much bringing awareness to like, 
invisible names in the stories of these black women and girls and femmes who are victimized by racist police. And so this, you know, I think this campaign definitely, um, it does a number of things. And one of those things is providing support to um, the families of these victims. So there's the Say Her Name's Mother, Say Her Name Mothers Network, um, where the mothers, it's a tight, very tight knit community um, of the mothers of of some of the victims um, or just various family members. And it's definitely just a very communal space um, for convening and actually uplifting and providing a safe space for these mothers to actually uplift these conversations and, you know, tell the, continue telling the stories of their daughters um, or relatives who were killed at the hands of carceral or police violence or the combination of both. And so, you know, I feel like AAPF, um, many things that were just like going on in terms of just like, well, you know, and rest in peace to to Mike Brown, rest in peace to the endless amount of black men who have been killed by police, um, you know, relentlessly. And it's just disgusting, of course, that that's even happening. But it's also disgusting that it's just like, while this is happening, there are black women who are, you know, even around the same time who are dying maybe a few days prior to when we hear about a major um, death. And it's like, well, no one's talking about that as well. And it's like, it's not a thing of just like, oh, forget about, you know, the black man who died. It's a thing of like, nah, if you're going to talk about black life, recognize all forms of black life that exist. Amen to that. Yeah, Yeah, go ahead. And and so, and sort of, um, and I think that is so important, sort of what you're talking about. And I think for a lot of us, you know, who identify as black men, it's sort of, it's crucial and important to understand that, you know, there is no liberation for black men. If, if, if that liberation um, has not been uh, in accordance with the liberation of black women, you know, it's sort of, you know, what good is it to liberate, you know, the black man if the black woman is so not liberated? That's not liberation, you know? Um, and I think for a lot of us, we really have to understand that. And I think sort of having that focus on sort of the most marginalized members of our society is the best way in which you can help all, you know, all of society, right? Because you know, and sort of they always talk about, you know, if you help the least um, of, of them all, and then you'll be able to help sort of everybody else. Um, and I think for black men, we really have to get out of that mindset of, you know, well, you know, it's about, you know, we're, we're dying. Yeah, we are dying. But like, what about our women? You know, they're going through even more, more things than even we can, you know, fathom and understand. And so um, really having sort of that intersectional sort of outlook and focusing sort of um, on that woman as well as other invisible members of of our community, uh, I think it's crucial to the liberation of the entire race, but also to the liberation of all people of all different forms. Uh, And so, you know, I I thank y'all for sort of the work that you're doing in the Save Her Name campaign, because I'll be honest, before that, I... You know, in the in my mind, you know, growing up, you know, and seeing all the different sort of Black Lives Matter movements, I never really thought about, you know, oh, black women are also going through this. You know, it was never at the forefront of my mind, right? Um, and with the Say Her Name campaign, it, it sort of, it made me, you know, to start thinking more about, okay, what about, you know, those who identify as women within our community? What about them, sort of, and, and others in our community, sort of, what you, attention are we giving to them? The interesting thing, I'm sorry to cut no, you go off. Ahead thing that i'm thinking about too is just like this has not like yes this the say her name specifically campaign this is the first time we're hearing about this but it's weird because not even weird just interesting that there's been other intersectional feminists before dr crenshaw um and of course before our time like audrey lord or anna julia cooper um you know who've been pushing 
for this framework, pushing for this framework, pushing for a campaign like this. And it's like, even back dating to the friggin' 1800s, you get what I'm saying? And so it's just like that point specifically, and I think that is, I'm really glad that you brought that up of just like how, you know, what the marginalized identities of blackness, you know, how those needs, how the needs, the, com the accommodation, the, the recognition, the demands, like everything that's needed for them is good for everyone. Yes. You know, when we think about, um, Black disabled identities, all of, you know, when we think about all of this, it's just like everything that, you know, a black man may want, it's like, okay, that's nice. That falls under um, a scope of everything like, you know, black women um, and black family and black girls are asking for. And so it's just like, that's why I think for me, when I found it, I think what also was just a thing that I'm just like, yo, like, it's just like, why is it that when it comes to power or even not even, yeah, power, Let's call it out was what it is it's like black men always want to be at you know the front of just like i'm gonna lead this like i want to have a say in this like i want to i want to be the ti of this i want to be the ice cube of this and it's like yo like there's people who have literally been putting their asses on the forefront of this right. with literally all of these frameworks and everything like that what makes you now think like you need to come here and like say well no this is what we need and you get to be the spokesperson how can you be the spokesperson of someone you have no idea of their lived experiences mm -hmm. of and how do you know they wanted you representing them right you know that's and so crazy. that's why like a lot of this work that's being done by aapf um definitely brings that to attention of just like yo like let these people tell their stories and if we are assisting them let them dictate how we should um how we should help them tell their stories even if they're not telling it let the family members or let like let's take that role and like support does it have to be a thing of like waging power waging that form of power of taking over that leadership and saying like let me you know because bobby when you think about it in our education i know for mine specifically it was no thing of just like oh this black woman did this or this black woman did this or whatever the case may be because look at this we're in um women's history month now like you know and we're thinking about that and it's just like we probably would still we would hear so much about mlk or just like hearing about um other male figures whether that be malcolm x or whoever else but it's like only time I was hearing about women was Rosa Parks. That's all. That's all. I'm Rosa like, y'all like, shout out to Rosa Parks. Rest in peace. But it's like, what about hundreds, like thousands, whether that be locally, nationally, globally, who've been like, yo, at this work. And it's like, yo, like, wait, we was just left in the dark about all of this? Right. But all intentional. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm just like, yo, like, the fact that this is all being done intentional even gives me more of a like that gives me more of a push to really like yo like nah we gotta get this like how can we blast this this needs right. to be blasted um so i'm really glad that you pointed that out and so sort of and as, as we're uh winding down to the last minutes of to sort of this interview uh, i want you to talk about uh, sort of the last part uh the last thing uh to do with african-american policy forum there's an event that you'll have coming up called Her Dream Deferred. Could you just uh, quickly describe as to what that is and sort of when uh, it's gonna happen and how people can get more information about that before we wind down uh, with our interview? Yes, so um, Her Dreams De Her Dream Deferred is actually, it actually, I think we're heading into the seventh year actually. Um, and this was pretty much started back in 2016. 
um, her dream deferred, a week on the status of black women. Everybody who's listening, make sure y'all tune in and RSVP. Check out AAPF's website, aapf.org, for more information on this. But yes, so this is a week-long series of conversations and virtual events that's pretty much focused on elevating the crisis um, facing black women and girls and femmes in our country. Um, so pretty much like her dreams of her, you know, it's various like roundtable discussions, panels, movie screenings, um, a lot of various activities and discussions. Also going to be some really special guests. If anyone's listening to this and interested, some really special guests. Um, so tune in if you are. But we're definitely on, you know, talking about topics such as like black women's healthcare experiences, um, student debt, digital racism, the criminal criminalization of black girls, um, the Say Her Name campaign, of course, and, you know, black women's self-care, black women's joy, black girl's joy um so this is pretty much like honoring um the experiences of just like black women girls and femmes and just like seeing how we can continue uplifting this not only in a shedding light of like very like dense information regarding the state of black women um girls and femmes but also thinking about like well how can we consider them in a scope of joy as well um so that's i hope i did a good job yeah. i hope my boss was listening no yeah like, that was great <laughs> uh and <laughs> no that was a uh, great and I'll be sure to share the information about where you all can get uh, sort of the information to sign up and sort of follow uh, the uh, forum and sort of all that they do. Uh, and again, thank you for all that and sort of describing the work that you all do at the African American Policy Forum. Um, and so sort of winding down the last, you know, this quick round, uh, this is the, 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 the speed round of, of questions about DC and sort of get your quick takes on it. Uh, what's your favorite DC spot to hang at or visit? Ooh, um, I have a spot I go to quite often, and it, uh, this is just me quickly thinking. Um, Fuzz 75 and over in Arlington got the best spot. Really? Yeah. I've yeah. never been, you know what? You know what? You know, you'll text me that information. I have to check it out at some point. Uh, yes. And uh, Georgetown Cupcakes or Bacon Wire? Oh, Bobby, come on. <laughs> wired all the way first off i'm not even gonna yes i'm actually going to do i'm gonna yes i'm accepting all georgetown cupcake slander because dry, what's the hype anyways yeah basically. <laughs> i told you y'all all the guests will be having on they they be hip to it they be hip to it uh what's your favorite brunch place Ooh, i'm not gonna lie i haven't really brunched like that in dc i've only been to half smoke um black owned fire place um so yeah i'm gonna just say half smoke all right. I will have to take you to a brunch place uh, when it's safe for us to. Uh, it's here in Georgetown. Um, you know, yeah, I will have to. I'll take you someplace uh, and, and you'll I'll see what you think of it. You probably have been to it. maybe. Um, also, what do you love about D.C.? Ooh, what do I love about D.C.? <laughs> no, 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 no shade, D.C. Um, yeah. I will say I like, I, I definitely like, um, the, the museums are nice. The museums are nice. Funny enough, I haven't, yeah, let me not even lie right now. The people are really cool. I feel like yeah. um, people from like, um, it was almost like New York in that sense where I just guess like meeting people from like, um, I guess various backgrounds, whether that be ethnic, um, racial, like, yeah, just various national identities as well too. Um, it's been really dope, specifically DC. Um, the lower community spot, the low, like the not the lower community spots, the um, 
the more local community spots are fire. Like, I feel like being in Georgetown, the bubble, we don't really get to see that so much. But when you actually go outside of the Georgetown bubble, the community spots are fire. Like, yeah. So. And what do you hate about DC? Oh, here we go. Uh, <laughs> I just feel like, well, can I make this Georgetown catered? Because I don't want to speak to No, them. go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, of course, like, Georgetown is just, like, mad... I feel like Georgetown makes it so like everything else in DC is inaccessible. So just like I won't know like the rest of DC, which is why I'm like I'm mad because I feel like there's so much more of DC for me to learn. But I feel like the DC, the Georgetown DC neighborhood specifically does not have good foods, food spots. There's not enough like um, options for fun. I feel like for um, for people to like actually, I don't know. Yeah. It's not enough options or like I feel like the nightlife itself don't really be like hitting on the crowd be needing it to. And maybe this is just like me thing of like getting out of that New York state of mind kind of like thing, but there's that. Uh so DC statehood, yes or no? I plead the fifth. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, I was, Yo. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. gonna cut this interview off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Alright. Well, thank you so much, Stage Norm, for coming on. Um, and also, I forgot to say, Dejourn is actually the first voice that you hear on the intro of the podcast. Every time you listen to any of my episodes, the first intro that you hear, that is Dejourn, as well as the last voice that you hear in the intro. That is Dejourn. So shout out to you for that. And again, thank you for coming on Bobby and Friends. Uh, very much so appreciated it. If there's a trend, you know he'll attend. <laughs>